There was a very famous Talmud Chacham. His name was Reb Chaim Chizkiyahu Medini. He lived from 1834 to 1904. And he wrote a very uh, well-known encyclopedic work called the Stechemed. Anyone ever hear of the Stechemed? It's a camp in Israel, right? I went there when I was a kid. I think it still, it still exists. But it was actually um, a very famous Sefer uh, very, uh, I think there were 18, 19 volumes, still very popular. So if you'd want to, today, of course, they have much more modern encyclopedias of, of knowledge. But back in the day, if you wanted to see like, uh, I don't know, you wanted to look up a certain topic uh, in terms of what the Torah says about it and what, what does Halacha say about it, what does Chazal say about it. So Stechemed wrote this massive, massive work. One man, this is what he looked like. He wrote this massive work on Tyra, 19 full volumes. And something that would normally require an entire institute. And you think you probably need 40, 50 scholars to put out such a thing. It was all put out by one man. And even more remarkable is that he did it in a location that had that didn't have a world-class research library, but rather he did it in the Crimea. Anyone know what, what the Crimea is? Crimea is famous today because it's a part of Ukraine that Russia took over a couple of years ago, and now they want to expand their whole foothold in Ukraine. The Crimea is like a place that was a very... Um, there was very few Tamid Chacham that lived there, if any. He was hired to be the Rav in the city of Crimea, and... There wasn't a big library there. Normally, if, let's say you would want to write an encyclopedia of that sort, you would need thousands of volumes. He's quoting thousands of volumes in, you know, in his Sefer. So you need to have a place you can go and, and look up every Gemara and every Chazal and every, every Halacha and, and Shiloh Sutshuvah's responsa. And you need a big library. There was no library there. there was, they were lucky if they had a Chumash in that, in that whole country. So... And this man, he moved there, and he wrote it basically all from memory, because right? he didn't have any, any resources. But he himself single-handedly put out the Sefer called the, um, the Stechemed. He had a photographic memory, and it enabled him to author one of the great Jewish works of modern times. Um, what's interesting is that the story behind the Stechemed is, is pretty famous, very interesting story. Um, when he was younger, he learned in a kailo. And there was somebody in the kailo that was jealous of him. They didn't like maybe he was a bigger masmid than him, he was learning more than him. And uh, so what this kailo, other kailo guy did against this Tehemu was really unconscionable. But in order to do him in, he went over to the cleaning lady in this kailal, and he basically said, how much do you make a week? So he said, she said, I don't know, uh, uh, $50 a week, whatever the equivalent of $50 was in whatever country he lived at the time. So he says, I will give you $100 if you go and accuse my colleague, you know, Rabbi Chaim Chizkiel Medini, of trying to attack you, of trying to... Uh, have his way with you. And that's obviously not good behavior for anyone, but certainly not for a Kailo guy. 
And she says, sure, you know, uh, $200 is a lot of money for me. And she, one day she came in and she started screaming that, you know, he had attacked her and he tried to, you know, seduce her or whatever. He made up some terrible, terrible Lashon Hara about her. And, uh, and he was obviously very, uh, uh, very embarrassed. He was married, a young married man. And it was like, obviously, try, go try explaining that to your wife and to your, uh, your friends and family. It was devastating for him. Um, but he didn't say a word. He didn't say, I don't know what you're talking about, you're crazy, like, because he just, whatever, he just didn't say anything. And a couple of months later, um, and the Rish Kailal, for his part, the person in charge of the Kailal, he didn't really think that it was true, but he didn't know what to do. It was already bad PR for his Kailal. The other hand, you know, so he had to do something, but on the other hand, he didn't want to accuse him. And so he was basically just stalling out for time. And a couple of months later, um, this cleaning lady who had accused the Stechemet of, of doing this to her, uh, she basically, she was fired. The Reshkel had fired her right away to get her out of the yeshiva. And she needed money. She needed money. She, that $100 ran out pretty quickly. She lost her job. She needed money. And she went to the to the Stechemed and said, listen, you know, if you could help me get my job back, um, I'll tell you, you know, what really happened. And she told him that this other, this colleague of his, you know, hired her in order to ruin his good name, tarnish his good name, and that's what happened. And basically, he got her the job back, but he didn't say a word about this. He didn't want to embarrass that Kailo guy didn't want to like make a Chal Hashem that a Kailo guy could actually stoop this low and do such a thing. So to his great credit, he, uh, he just, he stayed. I would have been, I would have like right away, okay, good, I get a chance to clear my name. But he didn't want to make a Chal Hashem. And that's, that was the end of the story. And, but he, he said that from the time that he made that decision not to say a word, before that he was just a regular average Tamar Chacham. And then all of a sudden he says, like all the mayanes hachachma, all the wellsprings of knowledge, opened up in my mind, and I was able to like absorb tremendous amounts of knowledge. Hashem like blessed him because he didn't make a chal Hashem, even though he was so tempted to, and he had every good reason in the, in the world too. But Hashem opened his mind and enabled him to uh, be this massive tamar chacham and to be able to. Uh, um, as a result, be um, you know, author this this great classic called the Stechemen. So I have a picture in this book. It's on page forty six of the emotional moment at the end of the Stechemen's tenure in the Crimea, before leaving his community for Eretz Yisrael, where he lived the rest of his life after Crimea. You have Medini. You see him in the far right of the picture. Blesses his. Kehila uh, by raising his hands and saying a bracha, and his congregation lowered their heads in eager acceptance of their master's final benediction. You see how, like, there one guy is even kneeling in front of him on the ground, but everybody is like just absorbed, trying to take in this last bracha of the stechemed before he leaves.
Let's find another one. All right, this is an amazing picture. Um, anyone ever hear of the Ribnitzer Rebbe? Ribnitzer Rebbe is, uh, he, he lived from 1898 to 1995. He served as the Rav in the city of Ribnitz, which is in, in I think it's in, the, in Russia, and um, he was a Hasidic rabbi. And he was a person who was tremendously holy. This is a portrait of him, very, very holy man. Um, and he was even under the communists who very strictly forbade every, any, any Jew from learning Taira, from performing any mitzvahs, including uh, Brismila and Shrita and teaching Taira, but he openly observed all the mitzvahs. He, he was a male, and he would go and defy the communists, and he would, like, under their noses, continue to give a Brismila to babies. And he left Russia in 1970, moved to Yerushalayim. He lived there a few years before moving to the United States, and he eventually settled in Muncie, New York. Now, if you ever go up, I told you about this? Yeah, so so if you're ever in the Muncie, anyone ever get up to Muncie, that area, that part of the... Anyway, next time you go up to Muncie, I'll give you a good eight, so go and dive in by the Ribbon Tzarebbe's Kabir. Um, it's right, it's central Muncie, it's like near Wesley Hills, if you know where that is, and um, it's, you feel like you're in Eretz Yisrael, just going into the... It's a very holy place, and you feel by davening there that you're in a very holy place. And people see tremendous Yeshuas, tremendous salvation. Like if you need something in your life, whatever it is you might need, if you go up there and daven, and you daven with all your heart, you know, it's a place that your Yeshuas are very, have a very high probability of being, being answered. Just personally, but the Diyav I had uh, a case that I, uh, I was waiting, I needed a certain Yeshua, whatever it may be, and um, and it was like, you know, I was waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to get an answer about this particular thing. And then I, we were going up to the country to uh, visit one of my kids on visiting day. And so he said, let's stop by the Ribnitzer. It's sort of on the way. You know, you make a stop off on the on Palisades Parkway before you get up to the, to the 17. So we got off by there and we uh, went and davened. Within about 20 minutes of leaving the Ribnitzer's kever, I got a call, um, and it was exactly what I was waiting for, for weeks and weeks, maybe months and months, and just mamasha, and I was davening at the Ribnitzer for this thing, and all of a sudden, like literally, within 20 minutes, it was, it was done. And that's one case, there's a million stories like this. Um... What's also interesting is not far from the Ribnitzer's kever, uh, stones throw away is uh, is the Skulena Rebbe, who lived in Borough Park. His father was a big tzaddik, and he was a big tzaddik, and he was very against the uh, against technology, against iPhones and internet and all that. He was one of the people that made that internet asifa that we spoke about a few weeks ago, and him and Ramatisio Solomon together. So if you go to the kever. You'll see, you know, they, by Rebus, they have like these big uh, 
places that people throw like kvitlachin, like you want to you write down your name or whoever's name that you want to Yeshua before you throw it in. So people throw in their kvitlach there, but they also take their smartphones and they smash it. Like they, 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 like you see maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 smashed iPhones in the keber. People go there and like that, that's, that's supposed to give them, bring them Yeshua's because this is what the Rebbe stood for. Now they have, I think, an additional thing like they have behind the keber, like a plexiglass, like sort of case, and people just throw in, you know, their smashed iPhones into there. It's like full of, of broken iPhones um, and tablets and all this stuff. But every night, the Ribnitzer Rebbe used to recite Tikkun Chatzais. Anyone ever hear of Tikkun Chatzais? You know what Tikkun Chatzais is? It, the, the English translation of Tikkun Chatzais is Midnight Rectification, which is a holy prayer recited at midnight as an expression of mourning over the Churban Beis HaMikdash, over the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. So at Chatzais Alayla, whatever time that is, you know, people in the olden days particularly, uh, they used to go and they used to daven a certain, you know, a few pages in a sitter, and, uh, and they would cry over the Churban Beis HaMikdash every single night. That's something, I don't think, not Shabbos, not Yantav, but like every other night of the year, there is a very holy uh, Indian to, to recite Tegan Chatzais today. I don't know how many people do it. In fact, you know, the Arts Girl Sitter doesn't even have Tegan Chatzais in it. You'd think that they try to get everything in. You know, they have the most, you know, they have a Tavos Chalayim. If you have a bad dream, you know, you want to recite something in front of three people to make the dream good, that's called Hatavas Chalayim, that they have in the Siddur, but they do not have Tikkun Chatzais. And other people have pointed this out to me, that they really should, that art schools should print a Siddur with Tikkun Chatzais. But, uh, but whatever the reason is, I don't know what their Cheshmer is, but obviously when they were printing their Siddur, they felt that there wasn't enough of a demand for it, like nobody does it, so why just put it in for the sake of putting it in? But there are Yechidim that still do it, and one of them... It was the Ribnitzer. And the Rebbe's devoted Shamus, his name was Ramesh, is Ramesha Hirsch Berkowitz, who's actually a, an acquaintance of mine, he explained to me that the, the photo that I'm going to show you was taken during the day. But yet he was reciting Tikkun Chatzais. You'll see that he's not wearing shoes. He has her Yaakov Emden Sitter, which has Tikkun Chatzais in it. He was wearing sackcloth. But you think it's a, it must be a picture that's wrong because it's not taken at night. It's not taken at midnight. It seems to be like in, the, in a sunny part of the day. He was sitting on the floor outside on grass by a tree. So he explained to me that it was taken during the day because he spent six to seven hours reciting Tikkun Chatzais. It wasn't like just davening it up. He started at Chatzais and he would daven for six or seven hours. He'd be crying over the Churban Beis HaMikdash. And he took his shoes off, which is a sign of Churban, a sign of Avelos. He wore sackcloth. He placed ashes on his head. All these are signs of deep sorrow and grief over the Beis HaMikdash that is no more. This is a, a beautiful picture. So it was by day. He started at night and he continued for six hours. It was already daytime.
so one of the great Rosh Hashivas of, of, um, of Lithuania, the Lithuanian yeshivas is where the main yeshivas were. And when we speak about the, the yeshiva world, the yeshiva, you know, the Ilama yeshivas, generally we're talking about in the pre-war times, we're talking about like uh, Lithuania slash Poland, yeshivas such as Brisk, yeshivas such as Volazhin, yeshivas Mir, uh, most of these were, were in Lithuania, um, Lithuania and Poland. Um, one of the great yeshivas was, of course, the Kamenets yeshiva. And the Rosh Yeshiva of Kamenets was a very holy Jew by the name of Rebarach Ber Leibowitz. This is what he looked like. And Rebarach Ber had a, a beautiful hadras upon him, and he, which means that he had a beautiful face. And so much so that when he traveled to America, he was in America, I believe it was in the late 1920s, maybe 1929, he came to America, and he was presented by the, by the mayor of the city of New York with a key to the city. Like, that's something that mayors do. It's like an honorary, obviously there's no real key to the city, it's just an honorary thing. Like when there's a hush of a person that comes to visit your city, and you're the mayor of uh, New York, or you're the mayor of Baltimore, you're the mayor of Los Angeles, so you greet him at your, you know, your, your range to greet him, and then you present him in like a big ceremonial ceremony with a key to the city. So they gave this to Rebarch Ber because they knew that he was one of the G'dayle Adar at the time. And when the mayor of New York saw Rebarch Ber, he remarked the following. He said, Rabbi Leibowitz disproves Darwin's theory of evolution. Now, Darwin was that person that had this theory, which is ridiculous, but he had a theory about evolution that we all come from monkeys or, you know, everything comes from apes. So he says, but this man disproves Darwin's theory of evolution because a holy person like him could have been created only by God. This is what a Gaiusha mayor was able to see in the face of a Baruch Bear. I just, I, I, I should tell you the story that there was a, um, a girl in seminary in Israel and she was looking through a book, maybe this book, I don't know, with G'daylam in it, and then they, she came to her Baruch Bear's picture and she made a disparaging remark. She made like some not nice comment about the way he looked, which is ridiculous because he, he looked like a Malach Hashem Tzavakis. I'll show you the pictures up close. But within a few minutes of saying something negative about Rebarach Ber, she, her face became paralyzed. She got like severe Bell's palsy and her face became paralyzed and it didn't, you didn't have to run to a makobol to connect the dots because she had just said something bad about Rebarach Ber. She calls her father in America. Her father takes a flight to Eretz Yisrael, the next flight out, comes to Eretz Yisrael, he visits her daughter, his daughter, and then he goes to Rav Steinemann, who is the God of Adar, and he, said, he told him the story. He says, what should I do? He says, tell you what you should do. You should go to Europe, find the caver of a Baruch Bear, and bring a minion with him, with you, and ask Mechila from, from his caver. And, and, you know, and, and there's a process, but that's, that's the way to do it, and then she should be okay. All right, sounds like fairly easy. I mean, I'm sure there's a big expense involved, but other than the monetary issue, you know, it seems doable. The only problem was he did a little research and he found that we didn't know where Rebarach was, was buried. He was buried right, you know, he died in uh, 1939, which is right at the outbreak of World War II. 
and uh, and they had no. He was buried very quickly in the ground. They didn't know. They didn't set up. They, there was never a tombstone set up for him. So it wasn't on. What we didn't know was that he was buried perpendicular to you know to relatives of his. So meaning that everyone was buried this way. He was buried this way. But other than that, we didn't know where he was. So there's an organization that's called All Eight Sadikim, and they specialize in finding and you know, updating Kibre Tzadikim. So if, let's say, there's a big Rebbe or a big Rosh Hashiva that's buried somewhere in Europe, so they go and they, pay, they, they raise money and they rebuild like an Eichel over the grave, like a mausoleum type of structure, or they refurbish the grave. Anyway, he met up with this guy that's in charge of this organization. He said, we have to find a Baruch because my daughter, you know, is depending on it. So he got a lot, he went to a lot of the descendants of Baruch Ber and tried to get whatever legacy, whatever, you know, Messer they had in the family exactly where he's buried. Then he got some, using some technology, some infrared technology, was able to like zero in over, maybe he did a drone, or I don't know if it was before the age of drones, but he was able to, to use technology to see if there was any place in the cemetery that there was a grave underneath the ground that was very per- perpendicular to the other graves. And he, he zoomed in on that, figured out where that was. And it was in, vicin- in the vicinity of, I think, his father's grave or someone else's grave. Anyway, they basically figured out that was his grave. They put up a, a gravestone with a beautiful inscription on it, and he got a minion together, the father, and he davened by the grave, and within a few minutes, his daughter's face immediately came back to normal. So that's the greatness of a Baruch Ber. And the, what's interesting is that we know that Baruch Ber was very machbid against... Uh, having pictures taken of him. It's very mock. We didn't want any pictures taken of him. Nevertheless, we have a lot of nice pictures of him. We do have nice pictures of him. So, so how did that happen? So the explanation given is that his desire to lift the spirits of a Jew superseded his own personal stringencies, meaning he had chumras. He, he was machmir. I don't want any pictures taken of me. And there's a reason for it. There's a halachic reason. There's a Kabbalistic reason. There are many Gedalim that did not want their picture taken. Um, but yet, he felt that if he, could, um, if he could lift the spirit of another Jew, he would be willing to forego his own personal chumras. If you look in uh, Rav Moshe Sternbach's, Sternbach's uh, Tshuvas Van Hagas, that's his Shalos Tshuvas Sefer's response uh, in Volume 3, uh, Simon 263, so you'll see exactly how he explains this. Like, what does that mean? How can you, if you have a personal chumrah, how could you just forego that stringency in order to make somebody else feel good? Like, it's still a stringency. How do you do that? He has an explanation to how Rebarch Ber, how Gedalim did this. But once a photographer was about to take Rebarch Ber's picture, and he motioned to him, please, I don't want to take no pictures. When someone told Rashiva that this was the man's livelihood, that he made a living as being a photographer, Reb Baruch Ber, with his kind heart, told the photographer, give me a few seconds. He straightened his hat, took hold of his Gemara, and posed with a smile for the camera. And this is the portrait that was taken. We actually have the portrait of the picture taken. You see he's like smiling. He's holding Gemara, he put on his hat, 
And this was the how great a tzaddik or Baruch Bar was, that even though personally he was very machmir about taking it, he was very against it. But if it could pick up another Jew or it could, or it could give a person parnasa, so then he was willing even to forego his personal stringency. Thank you.